welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie. I'm Leslie Harris, a gardener waiting for spring. Our plant of the week is the hellebore, but I don't get all scientific on you out there because I'm a little fuzzy on the exact botany of that one, but there's some good tips and tricks and information. I'll be chatting with Linda Vodder, she of Potager blog fame. She's written another book. Well, you could say that she didn't really fill up the pages with garden musings because it's a journal. She left that for you to do. It's really cool. And we're going to explore how she organized it and what we could potentially do with it. And it's not just about writing. This could also include smearing dirt on the outside of it. The playlist is about what to do in your garden at this time of year here in late February. Hey, I saw my first red bud in bloom this week. And if you're sort of shaking your head and wondering about that, no, it was not in Charlottesville, Virginia, but in northern Florida. And then I think I saw another one that was just beginning in South Carolina. Jeff and I went on a driving trip down south, and it's so fun to see the maple buds swelling. You know, they're so distinctive at this time of year because of the dark red. Up in Virginia, you're like driving right past them. You don't see them. In North Carolina, you begin to take notice, and then they're fatter and fatter as you go down south. Maybe by the time you're listening to this, it's sort of happening where you are. We got a couple of random azalea blooms in Hilton Head when we were visiting my almost 99-year-old mother-in-law, and it's fun to see those as I put this episode together while I'm visiting her. I'm dreaming about what I'm going to see in my little garden when I get home after a couple of weeks away, and that's why I chose hellebores because I'm really hoping to see quite a few of those when we get back to Charlottesville. And when I say hellebore, what do I mean? Well, the Latin name is helleborus. But to me, that's sort of like saying digitalis when everybody knows that you're talking about the word foxglove. I love Latin names, and I think that the clarity that they provide is really important. But if they have a lot of syllables, more than I need to spit out, and I'm not sacrificing any clarity, then I'll stick to the simple name. There are so many types of hellebore that I could make your head spin if I went into those details, and my head would probably fall right off if I tried to sort them out. So if you don't know what you have in your garden but you know you have hellebores, chances are pretty good that the type you have is the Helleborus orientalis, which is what I'm going to chat about today. So those are nodding flowers, which could be white or cream, lime green, pink, dark purple. Once you get a colony established, you could have any and all of these colors. And when I say flowers, I actually mean sepals. Hellebores are like poinsettias, dogwoods, bougainvillea, all that sort of thing. The sepals are the colorful parts, and they look like petals, but botanically, no, they are not. Do we care? No, we do not. Unless you're a botanist. I have an acquaintance who's very assiduous about her understanding of and attention to her hellebores. She knows exactly what she has, and she takes the time to deadhead each one so that there's no cross-pollination. Actually, she has so many hellebores that some misgotten, shall we say, seedlings do come up in existence. And I'm not sure if she still does this, but she used to dig up the undesirables and throw them into a pile that she called her boneyard. And anybody was welcome to come and dig them out. Quite a few ended up in my old garden, I assure you. She might not have been interested in hellebores born out of wedlock, but I sure was. Because hellebores are pricey. I mean, you might see a special at a big box store every once in a while, but they're generally more higher priced than most perennials. And do you know why? It's because they are pokey in their growth habits. There's an irony in that. Once you have hellebores and you let them sell so, you will have a ton of hellebores. But if you're only interested in named cultivars and having exactly what you have, well, put on your patient hat because they are slow growers. So what's good about hellebores? 
OMG, so many things. There's, first of all, this burst of spring when nothing else is in bloom. They're one of the first flowers of spring. And then they go on and bloom for like two to three months. Toward the end, you're so smitten with other things that are coming up that you don't notice them. But have a look around in April. Those guys are still blooming. I mean, that's amazing. You can say goodbye to a peony bloom sometimes after just four days. And yet, would I ever not grow peonies? No, ma'am. Hellebores are deer resistant. They're literally toxic to the buggers. So not just in the category, hey, I'd rather have something else. They're just really not going to eat them unless they're stupid or they have a death wish or something. Hellebores make great cut flowers. Let me repeat that. Hellebores make great cut flowers. And at this point, you're thinking, hey, this lady on this podcast might be mildly amusing, mostly to herself, but she clearly has never cut hellebores and brought them in because everybody knows that hellebores blow as a cut flower. No, but I have, and I will, and I do, and here's the trick. Let me assure you, it has nothing to do with searing the stems or any such complicated thing. Well, if that works for you, you should go for it, but my strategies are simpler. I use cut hellebores in two ways. The first is, at this time of year, I would cut them the day I want them for an arrangement, and then I say goodbye to them after 24 to 48 hours, at which time they have almost certainly already said goodbye to me. I mean, they're like sushi. Just because you can't hang on to it forever doesn't mean it isn't good. The second way to have hellebores as great cut flowers is later in the season after their seed heads have formed. And at that point, hellebores make at least an average good cut flower lasting, you know, a week in an arrangement and maybe longer. So you can either have low or high expectations for hellebores as a cut flower, but either way, you can enjoy them. Now, how to grow them? It could not be easier. And since I mentioned that they're pricey and slow growing, the best way to obtain them is to identify friends and acquaintances that already have them and then go digging. They're advertised as shade plants, but I think that's because it's hard to find shade plants that flower in the shade and hellebores do quite happily. So I think that's a marketing ploy because hellebores also grow really nicely in full sun, maybe getting a tiny bit crispy at the end of the summer in my experience, but really quite happy. One of the luckiest combinations with hellebores that I ever stumbled into was when some self-seeded near a few Annabelle hydrangeas, you know, the arborescence type. And Annabelle being Annabelle, you know, she's all over the place. She gradually took over the hellebores, which they themselves were spreading not as fast as Annabelle by any means. Well, where she was growing, Annabelle, whom I have anthropomorphized for the purposes of the story, well, she's just spreading and suckering around these hellebores. That means when I cut her down for winter, and I did in this spot, you don't have to, but I did because it was out front and I wanted a clean look. These hellebores were in full on baking sun, but they did not get crispy in the Charlottesville summer because they were under the shade of dear sweet Annabelle for six months of the year. So it's a combination that I recommend. It really worked for me. And how to tend to hellebores. Well, there's nothing to it. If you don't want misbegotten bastard hellebores, then do deadhead them. If you do want seedlings, then watch with wonder how cute the tiny ones are, and then watch with further wonder how long they seem to stay tiny. But they do grow eventually. And you can divide mature hellebores quite easily by stepping down with a sharp shovel. And when you do that, well, autumn is sort of the easier time to do that mentally because you're not gouging into existing flowers. In my experience, hellebores pout noticeably upon being divided, but they always seem to recover. And if you don't like looking at the pouting leaves, the ones that seem to be looking right back at you and saying, hey, what have you done to me? Then just cut them back altogether. 
And then in spring, they're going to say, oh, well, hello again. No big deal. I forgive you. And here's some flowers to go with the deal. So dividing them is, is easy. Do you have to remove the foliage from last year? Absolutely not. Especially if a leaf looks good, just go ahead and leave it. But it makes no horticultural difference whatsoever whether you cut the old leaves or not. I do tend to remove mine in winter. And in my big old garden, I was experimenting with chop and drop for those hellebore leaves. Now, those great big stiff green leaves, you know, they just really didn't disappear immediately. But I was happy to save myself a trip to the compost pile and give it a try. However, they stayed... They stayed quite visible and brown until, say, uh, April. And that's a long time, so it's not a strategy, this chop and drop of hellebore leaves that I would employ, like, right by my front door. They just took their sweet time decomposing. They're made of sturdy stuff and were honestly far from the prettiest thing to look at over winter. But it was a great way to treat the ones that were up in my hillside sort of woodland garden. They didn't bother me at all, and they fed the soil as they broke down. So chop and drop method aside... I've seen strong opinions on whether to cut away old foliage or not. I think the arguments are just based on aesthetics because I really don't think it makes a difference horticulturally. I agree that a few green leaves settles in the new bouquet of flowers really nicely. But I must admit that while I'm down on my hands and knees, I know I'm much more interested in the flowers than I am in the leaves, and I do tend to take everything away for winter and wait for a fresh show of spring The flowers tend to come up first, they look a little naked, and then next thing you know, they have fresh green foliage kind of supporting them. Any drawbacks about this plant? Well, I I can't think of any, except they're not native to the United States, and that is too bad. But they supply a little bit of the sweet stuff, a little nectar for the early pollinators, so maybe they make up for it in that way. Okay, coming up, we're going to talk with Linda Vodder, who, like a hellebore, provides us with a beautiful preview of spring with her new garden journal. Well, we are here with a very good gardening friend of mine who has inspired me in so many ways. And now, just recently, she's done it again. And her name is Linda Vodder. And she's written this fab. Well, there aren't that many words in this book. There's a lot of there are a lot of lines and a lot of things to fill in. But it's called the Garden Journal, and it's a five-year record of your home garden. I have never kept a journal. I am inspired to keep a journal. Hi, Linda. How you doing? I am doing great. It was so fun seeing you. Where was it? We were together. Now that's. I know. I know. What was that? That was Asheville. We spoke to all those master gardeners down there in North Carolina. It was so fun. They were lovely and knowledgeable people, right? Right. And you get the award for being one of the the funniest, best presenters I've ever heard. (laughs) Just absolutely the funniest. I just love it. If you're not having fun. I, yeah, I might crack a few more jokes than you, but you inspire people with your beautiful photographs and all the things that you've done. And both of us listeners, I'm sure, are tracking that we've both, one less famously than the other, have both stumbled into new gardens. And uh, and it's so weird. It's like, okay, so it's only been since September for me. We're recording this in early February. For you, it's been, it hasn't been a year? Has it been almost a year? Yeah, this is my first true spring here where I have kind of an established garden, I'm doing air quotes, um, kind of an established garden where I will have tulips and, you know, pansies and violas and the orchestration of how everything comes together. This will be my first real spring symphony here at the cottage. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, I I really am too. It's you, you and I have talked about this. You feel like a kindergartner again. It's just all new. Every spring, it's new. 
So you had the advantage of sort of seeing, okay, this property had these bulbs, but not very many bulbs, certainly not the the maximalist look that I like and that you like. And so did it have a few last spring? It had, I would say, two handfuls okay. of nature daffodils. <laughs> That's minimalist. That's not what we want. Yeah, no, no. It had mostly just lawn. It had mostly lawn and kind of, you know, the flower beds that really hug up against the porch. And that yeah. and that was it. And mine is on, it's in a historic neighborhood. I couldn't mess with the topography and it sits up. The house was built in um, 1930 and all of the houses on my street sit up on what is called a rolling terrace. Mm. And you learn from historic preservation guidelines, you can't mess with the rolling terrace. So I really had to figure out how I could have a garden up front and take out a lot of the grass without messing up that rolling terrace. And it was a challenge, but we came up with it and and it has turned out just brilliantly, I think, and and I love it. And street view, it's like it's been conveniently tipped up for the viewer to see, right? Yes, yes. So, you know, that trick the eye kind of thing where you plant, you know, taller things in the back and medium things in the front and foreground plants in the very foreground, it gives the illusion that it's on a gradient, it's on a slope. But mine really is on a slope. And so, but it was nevertheless, it's kind of like it's flat and then it goes into a slope. And that's the area that goes down to the sidewalk. So what I did was I took out kind of that top flat layer and left the rolling terrace in. And that part is grass and sunflower beds. But the upper, what I call now the upper terrace that abuts up against as you walk out from the cottage, that is where my flower beds are now. Okay. Okay. That must be very satisfying for people who live near you. It's pretty dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> and it's on a corner. So you see it from every vantage point and it's elevated. So that's why I call it um, the cottage on the hill. Yeah. Because it is, it is elevated. And for a modest cottage, it's got a pretty dramatic, hopefully appropriate garden that sits on the, sits on the corner. So yeah, I get lots of, lots of passersby, lots of kids. It's, it's just been fun. And when you say hopefully appropriate, really, does it matter if you like it? I don't know. I think it kind of does. You know, I think it kind of does, as you know, as somebody now who who deals with an HOA and things, we don't want to offend. Right. And I and I want it to be appropriate to the vernacular of this historic neighborhood. So I don't want it to look like it screams, oh, I'm out of place here. Because our eyes kind of like continuity to a certain extent, and they don't want to abruptly stop someplace that's not well kept. So so when I say hopefully, I really tried to keep those things in mind. Um, and it is a one-story cottage. It's got a rolled roof and everything. It looks like it should be in the English or Irish countryside. And so from a scale standpoint, I, I wanted it to be appropriate. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I do want it to fit in in a unique way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Your style fitting in. But back to the uh, back to the possibly maximalist. And it's OK to kind of go a little crazy, I think, with spring bulbs because they don't last that long. Um, can we just get a number or can you remember approximate? Well, we'll have to order this many of these and that many of these. 
Well, for me, when it comes to bulbs, I think, and whether you're doing this in a naturalistic way or you are doing it in less of a naturalistic way, i.e. tulips, which don't reliably come back unless you have the perfect microclimate, they're not going to reliably come back. Um, I say go big or go home. Me too. Because that's the drama of them. Because first of all, you need a large quantity of them that will bloom over a prolonged period of time. So it's not a one-shot wonder. And then one hot and windy day wipes them all out. So I like to plant them so that some bloom early, some bloom mid, some bloom late. And that way I have a show, a protracted show that goes over a long period of time that I can, that I can enjoy. And not only that, it changes. You know, when it first starts out, it's in one color palette and then people start walking by every day because then that color palette changes and it's completely different at the end than it was at the beginning as the rest of as the rest of the supporting cast members come into play. Oh, now the azaleas are in bloom and that makes them look different. So to me, it's go big or go home. None of this, you know, plant one at a time. You dig a big hole, you know this, you dig a big hole and you put in 50 bulbs at a time. Yes. At least that's the way I like to do it for, for drama. Yeah. And But then I can still do the thing where you go to Trader Joe's, you buy that blooming hyacinth to have next to your bed, but then I can still put that blooming hyacinth out in the garden in a, you know, in another area. So I, I can I can kind of do big and go home or singularity too, the singularity too. Yeah. And if you were to use your garden journal, you would know what you have done, which which is kind of the trick sometimes. You know, this is my goal to actually get organized because I never have been. I just a quick bulb story. So I thought to myself last fall, I moved in September. We lost our dog. I was sad. Um, you know, just moving is is hard. And I just thought to myself, that's it. You know, for the first time in my gardening life, I'm not just not going to order bulbs. I'll, you know, this guy was a gardener who lived here. I'll just wait and see what comes up. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that didn't last because, you know, then you see the sales and you're like, oh, well. So I ended up just thinking, um, what was it? I chose just a purple. I can't remember the name of it. Um, tulip mixed in with the thalia, the white daffodil. Just oh, yes. A dozen of those in between these 16 hydrangeas that I planted along a wall. So it'll just be kind of hotel-y looking, not naturalistic, just plant about to burst into green leaf, we hope, if it, if I planted it right. And then a splash of purple might repeated 16 times. Yes. So yes. that's what I did. How how big, but like, do you have numbers on how many you planted or do you not? There's so many you don't even know. Yeah, you asked me and I didn't mean to evade. I probably <laughs> have, I bet I planted a thousand tulips. Nice. Probably 800 of them are in front and 200 are in the back because my back is a lot smaller. And what do I do with them when they're finished? I pull them out and I compost them. Do you really? Yeah. And by the time, and then people say, well, then what's there? Well, it's all of those things that are waiting in the wings to take up that space. So then there's the perennials and the annuals that I've seeded, the Cleome, the Salvias, the Salosias, the uh, Minoan Lace, the Foxglove, the all of that then it's their time. And then they can have their time to shine after the bulb season is over you know, I've often said in the South, and you'll understand this, that we truly only have two seasons. We have before the heat and after the heat. Mm. 
And increasingly, I don't feel like we even have much of a spring. Mm. So I want to make sure that I really squeeze that sponge dry and I get as every drop of beauty out of what should be spring that I can. And bulbs help me do that. And as you discovered, if your soul has to have them, they have to have them. Whether you have a lot of room or a little room, you had to have those Talia white daffodils and, and those tulips and, and to hell with practicalities. Yeah. I just was going to do that to have them. You know, some people need to exercise willpower against, you know, chocolate or sweets or chips. And for you and I, it's, Oh, do I really need a thousand bolts? You know, that's where our willpower has to sometimes come in. And it's hard. I, I feel like I feel like it's better used on chocolate. I really do. Better for the waistline. Um, I got to tell you a funny story about my mother-in-law, who's going to be 99 in April. And she I finally found a gardener for her. Every time I went down there, I was spending all my time in the garden. I'm like, I actually want to do other things with you, like visit you. So we found a gardener for her. Yeah. But she loves looking at her garden now. And we talked about how um, the gardener could do tulips for every year. And she said, no, it doesn't work here. You have to, they only last for one season. And I said, and, and tell me about that. Um, why is that a problem? And she said, oh, well, I would want them to last for a long time. It's just not worth it. And I said, Betty, do tulips make you happy? And she mm-hmm. said, yo, they make me so happy. And I said, ah, I'm, I'm not understanding any of this. Uh-huh. Like, you're yeah. in your late nineties. It's time to be just let's get some tulips. Oh, and she was totally, she's like, Oh my gosh, I never thought of it that way. You're absolutely right. Let's get some tulips. <laughs> I wrote a long blog post once with a title. Is it worth it? Is it, you know, people say, is it worth it to plant a thousand bulbs that only last a week? Well, first of all, Oh my goodness. The, the blue <laughs> time lasts for a good, probably six weeks. It may be, you know, at its peak and not at its peak during that duration, but it blooms for a period of up to six weeks. The other thing is, is that delight and that beauty and that joy is amortized over months from the enjoyment I get from selecting my color palette to planting them in the fall while I'm listening to a football game to the shot of dopamine I get when I see the first tips emerge you know, on a spring day, like I'm doing right now to the enjoyment of the literally hundreds of people who walk by and take pictures and enjoyment. And then I'm enjoying those same pictures of that beauty that I've captured. And so is it worth it? Oh my goodness. Yes. It's amortized over thousands, literally thousands of people and photographs and days and seasons and years. (laughs) So if it sounds like I'm a little bit evangelical about tulips and and bulbs in general, I am because (laughs) it's about joy and nothing gives me quite that much joy. Not even chocolate? Not even chocolate. I could live without chocolate, but I could not live without tulips, I don't think. You're a slightly different creature than I am. I'm not quite sure what what I would choose there. Um, Let's just talk quickly about other bulbs for practicality. I also treat tulips like they're one season. But uh, do daffs where you live in in Oklahoma, do they daffodils come back? Oh, yeah. Snowdrops? Yeah. Uh, How about you have probably pretty dry soil there, which most bulbs like. And of course, they're sunk into, you know, our flower beds, which we may or may not be watering all summer. And that's 
that's what they don't like. But how about the um, alliums? Do, do you like alliums? Oh, and yes. Do, I, and I love all them. those other ones, do you, do you try to perennialize them? Do you leave them? Yes. I don't do, I don't have time to do a lot of garden consulting anymore, but I, I remember working with this one woman who she had a lake, a common lake at the bottom of her property. And she had this beautiful woodland slope that went slowly down and contoured towards the lake. And we, we naturalized daffodils all nice. through there. And then she started naturalizing muscari. And then we thought, oh, wouldn't it be beautiful then if we started doing forget-me-nots and we could get it all to bloom in, in tandem. And granted, it took a lot of time, but oh my goodness, the kind of show that she had was far different than the kind of show that I had but it was magnificent. Yeah. And she has a problem with deer. Oh, but none of those would have been good for them, right? Yeah. Tulips, not a winner, but oh, right. daffodils are far more, you know, deer repellent. And she had a more naturalistic environment and it spoke so much more to the type of landscaping that she was doing. Um, kind of like, have you ever been to P. Allen Smith's home, Moss Mountain Farm in the spring? He's got those thousands and thousands of, of daffodils. I have not been, but I have seen photographs. Yeah. And it's just breathtaking. Well, on a smaller, but albeit pretty dramatic scale, she, you know, she could do that. Wow. And I don't have that kind of garden. Right. But, but you plant some daffodils and let them come back. I do have some daffodils. I particularly like the miniature daffodils, you know, I love like jet fire and tete-a-tete and yeah. those I tend to like to plant along walkways, mm -hmm. what I call primrose paths where you've got flagstones that go from one area to the next and they kind of grow up along with, well, like forget-me-nots or muscari or little purple violas, uh, a juga that blooms about the same time. And to me, that's just the sweetest, sweetest kind of thing along little little paths. Yeah, the good combination. Yeah, I can have micro areas that do those kinds of things and certainly in container plantings. Sure. Oh, I have a question for you just quickly for listeners might want to know how strict are you about maintaining? So now, you know, it's a daft, so you want it to come back. How strict are you about leaving that foliage? Do you cut it when it's flopped? Do you cut it when it's withered? Do you cut it when it's completely brown? How, how do you go? Typically, I don't cut it at all. I wait till I can just slough it off. It just okay. rots in place. So all that's right. mostly true for my alums. But remember, first of all, it's because it just doesn't really work. Uh, but another reason I'm not going to leave my tulips, even if they would come back, would I leave them? No, because do I want to have a thousand tulip bulbs browning in my front yard for the most beautiful part of the year? No, I do not. Pretty crispy looking. Yeah. Yeah, be pretty crispy. But the daffodils, the alliums, the other things, they are part of vignettes. And the, the other plants in that vignette will grow up to obscure the dying foliage. So for right now, um, the areas where I have miniature daffodils, they also, I have like Miss Lemon Abelia and Lemon Lime Nandina and different things that are growing up around them. And by the time the daffodils are finished blooming and starting to die back, those other things are cascading over them and hiding their foliage. And so I don't have to cut it back. And Lordy, I never do that rubber band, bend it over. No. And really, they don't like it. 
Well, no, because what you're doing is you're, I can't remember if the word is xylem or phloem, but whatever that conduit is that makes it the, so right. the photosynthesis, the chlorophyll gets to their roots to feed them for the next year. You've, you've cut it, you've cut it off. And so don't be, don't be braiding. Don't be rubber banding. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you've, you've basically put a tourniquet on it yeah, that it you doesn't did. want, and it will delay the amount of time because that foliage has not been exposed to the elements and it will delay the amount of time that it takes for that to wither back. Now, one thing, and this is a great tip, and I'll be curious to know if you do this too, especially ones that I want to come back, like Allium Ambassador, Gladiator, Schuberti, Christoffi, all of those that are just so fabulous. I want those to come back year after year. The problem with them is drainage. Yes. And and they really want dry soil, and they don't want to be like we have to do in our southern gardens. We constantly have to water the things that are surrounding them. So one thing I learned is number one, plant a pretty deep hole, deeper than you would think. Number two, I put in a heavy dose of some kind of grit at the bottom of the hole. Oh. So I will put in chicken grit or I will put in pea gravel or I will put in something that will not decompose over time and will help maintain drainage in the long haul. Okay, just sort of wick the water away from the wick the water away. So if it is really, really wet, it's kind of like a miniature little French drain. Yeah, for those alliums, and it just kind of keeps them drier. And I, I love agapanthus, and the Southern Living Plant Collection has so many beautiful ones, and and I want them to come back. And, and there's a variety now called indigo frost that I think is hardy enough for me to grow here. And so I've started doing that with them too. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. You said you were curious if I did that. And the answer is no, but I think it's a really good idea. I have just done multiple shoppings, which is not the greatest idea. So I think I think it's a great idea to try to augment that drainage situation for these bulbs. I, I even do it with some of my perennials because yeah. our soil is so heavy here. Yeah. And mine is too. I've given up on planting. Like I'll do, I haven't even got a rosemary for my new place yet, but I'll definitely do that in a pot. Got my first lavender. That's going to stay in a clay pot. They just, they just like dry. Yeah. They like dry and they don't like the humidity. And, and we never know, you know, we're feast or famine when it comes to rainfall. So if we get what our average rainfall is, chances are it's going to come all in two days. <laughs> Great. <laughs> which is sadly what California is experiencing now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they go through this feast or famine. And so I, I spend a good amount of physical and mental energy on how can I prevent root rot? Because yeah. that is so much of an issue here. And I probably lose a lot more things to that because either I'm overwatering or, you know, whatever and you can amend with compost, you can amend with all of those wonderful things, but they're organic and they break down over time. And over time, the soil wants to revert back to its natural clay state. And the clay gobbles up like Pac-Man. It gobbles <laughs> up all of that organic matter and then it's gone and you have to do it again. Well, you know, gravel and things like that doesn't break down. Yeah. So it really could be helpful. I, that's yeah. a great tip. All right, let's get back to this fabulous book. It is okay. aesthetically pleasing. It's in my hands. It's this sort of ecru, sort of linen-y sort of cover with guess what, a topiary. You know, this is this is what you love. This is what I love. This is a two ball. Looks like it could be a juniper. No, probably knowing you, it's a boxwood. 
Um, <laughs> and um, it's a five-year record of your home garden. Oh, and you open it up. Here's one of the grooviest things. You open it up and there's a like a pocket folder thing right in the inside cover. Like bonus, like, wow, I feel like the, um, you know, kind of that anal retentive high school girl who has, you know, separate like color coded markers for each quiz test and class. And so I'm already feeling really good about things. But then I just started flipping through and there are so many good things. I would say that one of the best things about this <laughs> and I, I got to the place where, okay, it's January 1st. What am I going to write down? Well, bloody nothing. Cause I didn't touch a, you know, I was probably still in bed that day. I don't know. So, but I have four more chances because for each date, instead of January 1 through December 31st, and that was 2024 and I moved and everything was chaotic. It's like right there, right under January 1st, I have this year and the next four years. And one of those days, I bet you one of those days, I'll say, I'm going to go out and do some gardening because it's beautiful today. And I can see, and if it's like a day like February 7th, I will actually probably have several of those days filled in. And, it, and of course, if it's April 1st, you'll be like crowding out the time. I, brilliant way to do it. First question is, what inspires you to the, do this book? And then my second one will be, how did you think of this genius way of, of organizing it? Okay. First of all, there are no new ideas. You know, there are no new ideas. Every idea I've ever had is I'm standing on the shoulders of other people, you know? So what other garden journals have I liked? Which other ones did I find informative? What didn't I like about them? What would I have done differently? And my, my publisher and I, we, we really labored on how much space for each date should you put in there? If you put in too much space for January 1st, that becomes intimidating. Yeah. And you think, oh, I've got to record every innocent thing. So you don't do it because you're intimidated to do it. The other thing is you're not really probably going to record something every single day. And the best time to start keeping a garden journal is 20 years ago. Sure. The next test time is today. So I was much better about journaling when I was a new gardener than I am now, because I needed to remember things that now I know instinctively. Okay, now I know when I prune back the spirea. Now I know when I cut back the barberry. I didn't used to know that, so I had to record it. And I would keep a garden calendar and things like that. Now that I know those things instinctively, I don't have to record them anymore, but there are other things I do have to record. So it's a very personalized thing. The other thing is that you may not be doing any gardening on January 1st. But when I first started to garden, I loved New Year's Day because that was the day that I would transfer all of my gardening to-dos from my last year's gardening calendar onto my next year's gardening calendar. And month by month, I would go through there and I would say, okay, this is the day that I need to fertilize um, the hydrangeas. So that would be my day. The more I started to garden, now what do I do on January 1st? I still have my gardening. Okay, it's January 1st. I'm going to be perfect this year. <laughs> Before the truth comes. Before the truth comes out. And now what do I record on January 1st? I'm probably not out there. I'm, I'm recording. These are my garden resolutions for this year. What did I not do next year that I vowed to do this year? So this year I wrote in there, I'm going to stake 
I'm not going to procrastinate. As soon as I see the plants that need staking, I'm going to stake them. I'm not going to wait till they're already big and I can't do it anymore. You know, yeah. as soon as I see the first sign of slugs, I'm not going to procrastinate. I'm immediately going to go and, and put down the sluggo. Okay. So that's what I say on January 1. Okay. These are the thing. These are my garden resolutions for this year. Then on January 2, I may say, okay, so now what do I write down? Okay. <laughs> what do I need to get from my garden center? So I'm ready to rock and roll because I might start seeing snails on January 15th here in Oklahoma. Okay. So I'm going to go and on my list, what do I need to get at the garden center? So I will have it so I don't procrastinate. I'm going to get sluggo. I'm going to go ahead and get my tool sharpened. I'm going to do those things. On January 3rd, I don't have anything to write. But next year, I might have a lot to write. So I can take up the previous space from the previous year. And I can use that real estate to write down the things that I, you know, that I need more space for. And it's so completely personal. You can write down whatever you want. Exactly. If, you know, you could write, if you feel like jotting something down, you could say, you know, oh, today I, you know, I read my first copy of fine gardening or today I listened to a new podcast or whatever it is that you yeah. want to, I visited a garden. I, you know, shop for seeds and here's what I got. Oh, but wait. So, so those are the daily log entries and they are very short and they are not intimidating and I think it would be fun, actually, I can see myself. Um, all right, so here we are in 2024, 25, 26, 27, 28. I can see myself in January of 2029, going back and realizing, hey, I still have a lot of blank pages here, blank uh, entry things here in January. So I can still use this before I buy Linda's next copy of, of the Garden Journal. So okay, well, here's the, here's the other thing to do. It helps you with habit formations. So. I may not develop the habit of writing what I'm doing in my journal every single day, but the first thing I do, granted, I know you're not supposed to get on your phone the very first thing in the morning, but I do. And why do I do that? Because first of all, I want to check to see what the weather's going to be to know how to dress and things. But also I take note first thing in the morning, what is that day's high and what is that day's low? And if I record nothing else, I will record the high and the low for that day over time. And I can't tell you how important that is, because in previous journals that I've kept, I've got five years of, of highs and lows. And I'll think, oh, my gosh, on January 15th, on this day, it was 70. And this year it is minus two. Wow. So that tells me how to plan for my garden. It also helps me see the trajectory of patterns over time. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I have started doing, and I just found it by fluke. And so I've developed the habit every single day. So I'm going to right now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go to and you use whatever weather app you want to use. Okay. So for me, I just typically use the Apple weather app. Uh -huh. okay, so I'm going to my Apple weather app and I can see that today the low is 47. The high is 64. Okay. Yeah. Which is crazy. I'm going to record that right now. February thinks it's already March. So oh, I'm going to record that. I'm going to look forward for as long as I can look into the future. 
So I'm going, I can go 10 to 14 days. Mm -hmm. I don't even see a freeze for 10 to 14 days. That tells me that, oh, I can safely go ahead and cut back this. I can safely go ahead and cut back that. The other thing that I have started checking is this, I, again, I found by accident. It will tell you your average temperature and how it compares to historical averages. So today I am 15 degrees above my historical daily average. Wow. So now I've started recording not only the high and the low, but the above, the over and under, if you will, of the temperature. Wow. Week before last, we were like 30 degrees below average, and now we are 15 degrees above average. Crazy. If you don't believe in climate change, just look at your garden journal. Yeah, exactly. So you track those things over time. And the importance of that is comparing year to year. So you truly know how things have changed. It's empirical evidence, but it also helps you plan for the future. So this year, I am cutting back things, even though last, last week I told all of my YouTubers, oh, wait, wait, wait. The title of my YouTube today was hurry, hurry, hurry. because. <laughs> Now I know it's not just it's not just what the calendar is telling me. It's what my garden journal common sense and my garden is telling me. Yeah. yeah. That's the stuff I want to record. And, and, and like, you know, that is such great information, but you can make this journal as personal as possible and you can go into other areas. I remember the only other time that I did keep a journal, I also was a beginner and I just had a blank book. It was just, you know, I just threw down the date and sometimes it was the next day that I did it again. And sometimes it was the next week, sometimes the next month. But I remember enjoying going back to reading it, discovering, oh, I planted that then. Oh, I bought three of those, but only two are alive now. Oh, we celebrated Carter's birthday that day and we had chocolate yes. cake, <laughs> you know, silly things like that. It yes. is, it's very fun just to jot down little things. Um, I am so impressed also with the the to-dos and the how-tos that you've included. We're not bogged down with information in this beautiful book, but there's just a quick explanation on a lot of different things. Was it difficult to arrive at that list of what to explain and what not to? Not really, because they're they're just basically primers. Okay, mm. so you're I'm planting bulbs. Well, how deep do I plant a bulb? And all you have to do, all of this information is searchable. It's Googleable. Yeah. And so I'm not providing any, any expertise out there. I have aggregated it in a place for quick reference. So I forget, okay, what is that recipe? I couldn't tell you what it is now for the organic homemade fungicide that I can make. And I couldn't tell you what it is now, but it's right here in my garden journal. Perfect. And the other thing I, I recently did, Mike McGrath's You Bet Your Garden, yeah. On NPR. And he was saying, but Linda, what are you thinking? It's white or it's in a pale color. And I said, ah, oh, that is intentional because I want it just like my pots, just like um, my garden, my brick, my sidewalk. I want it to show patina. I want it to show age. I want this to be a living, breathing heirloom of my garden. So I want that Oklahoma clay to be all <laughs> over it. I want fingerprints to be on it. I don't have any grandkids, but when my grandkids come and they're planting something, I want their fingerprints to be on it. 
This is an heirloom that I want to pass down to my family, to maybe the next owner of the cot of this garden. This is this is a keepsake. So just like the cookbooks you cherish the most have stains on them and writing in the margin and all of that kind of thing, I want this to be the same way. I want this to have the patina of that Oklahoma red earth on it. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it look loved and used and not just a pretty coffee table book. I mean, you could, and I was actually planning to keep it by the coffee machine and just, you know, jot down, here's what I did yesterday or by the bourbon and here's what I did today. So you could keep it inside. Um, but I love your idea of getting the patina on. It's interesting to think that you and I would have, um, ours would end up with a reddish tint because we have our clay, but yes. somewhere else in the country that might go a deep brown, you know, whatever yes. it is. That's very cool. And you know what? Get that get that chlorophyll on there. Get that beautiful green, that mossy green on there. Let it, let it be shown that it was well-loved. And typically what I'm trying to get in the habit of is when I, and I did it this morning, when I get my garden truck and I get my tools ready, I put this out on the table, on my social patio in front, because I'm trying to teach myself now, my garden chores aren't done until I've recorded it in my journal. So it's right out there by my ice water. Yeah. And if I've got any plant tags, I can stick them inside that little pocket. Yep. I added, this will show you that I really do use mine. I have all sorts of extra ribbons. So oh. it comes with a ribbon, but I have extra ribbons to mark. Okay, if I'm bulb planting, then I've got the bulb planting section marked. If I've got, um, you know, something different, then I, then I have that marked. The other reason that I like to have it out there is because I am terrible about procrastinating. And I'll say, oh, I will do that later. I will remember that today is the day that I planted my nasturtiums. You won't. But if I have it out there and I've got that crumpled up nasturtium packet of seeds in my pocket, before I go in, I can just write down while I've got it right there. Okay, this is the variety that I planted. This is the date I planted them. And then I can compare when I planted them this year to when I planted them last year. And I can push the envelope or not push the envelope. Yeah, I think that's so cool to think of it in two different ways. I had only thought clean, but now I'm tempted by the dirty. I, you know, such a new garden for me. I don't have a really good system. I have this little corner of the garage where I put my stuff. But if I just had a little table and just made myself, yes. you know, you're not done. I, I'm not done until I put my tools away. I like, you know, you have to time to put your toys away. You're finished playing now. Um, but that could be, that could be a part of it. There's, there's something to be said, you know, your, your garden is small, but expansive within the property. My garden is tiny because I'm in an HOA with a ridiculously relatively large size lawn that will change. I'm going to plant a garden there, um, but it probably won't change for a couple of years because I'm busy with a few other things. So in my old garden, which was big, and your old garden was bigger, right? The one it was you bigger. Left. Nothing. And and by the way, can I just do a little pitch here? Because you and I did. A, it was kind of an impromptu garden tour. Oh, very much so. It was <laughs> so much fun. It would only have been funner if we'd both had a bourbon while we were walking. And what were we thinking? We didn't know each other well enough then. Uh, but I would encourage everyone 
to go back and look at that because your garden, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was large. It was large and it was busy. And actually I'm not quite sure that I wouldn't have been, you know, I guess that you could say that this is one of the reasons that I left that and, you know, all the grandchildren that had been growing instead of plants. Um, I, I don't know if I could have journaled about that garden, maybe just the front or maybe sections of it. And that's okay because you could make it very personal, but it would have been overwhelming to try to inventory everything that was on that property right. here at my new one. It's very snackable and very, and a yes. very a sort of attractive thing. This was existing. I bought this then this survived this. Didn't, I made an improvement here, switched out this for that. I'm, I'm excited. I'm really, I'm, you've got me going here. Well, here's, here's the other fun thing that I love what? to report. So sadly, I do not have any grandkids and you do have small people in your world. So many short people. Short people. I borrow short people on my street. Yay. Tons of kids on my street. So they come over and we have seed collecting days. And they come over and we have look for caterpillar days. And I, and I record those in my garden journal. And the other thing that I do, this was, I can't take credit for this. Like I say, I have no new ideas. <laughs> I only have ideas that I steal, but let me see. And, and it's, I know this is a podcast, but I'm going to show you that I really do do it. <laughs> okay. So can you see that? Can you see yeah. the photograph? I, yeah. I'm seeing a blue sky and a garden path. And yeah, borders okay. on either side. So, you know how there are times, and you want to remember, okay, where did I plant these, or where are those alliums, or where are they? And I and my husband said, you know, he had a tiny, tiny little Canon printer, Ivy Canon printer, that puts out little two by three photographs. Oh, and they are stickers. <gasps> they have adhesive on the back. So I have a little tiny printer that connects to my phone. I'll take a picture of like, okay, this is where my alliums are planted. And I'll take a picture of that with landmarks of my garden. I'll take a little snapshot of that. I'll make a sticker out of it. I will print it out from my Ivy printer. And then I put that sticker in my journal. So now I know in the future, that's where those alliums are planted. Wow. Now I did it here on January 1st because I wanted to take a picture of this is how the cottage looked on January 1st. I will do it again next year and compare, oh my goodness, look at how much the redbud trees have grown. Look at how big the holly hedge has grown. And I've got pictures that I don't have to go back and find someplace else. Yes. I've got year by year pictures and referenceable photography images of things I need to know. That is so good to have right in that book. Just a tip for somebody who's who's just not going to take that extra step. Um, a quick habit and nothing to do with your journal, but a good sheet. We, I think everybody's realizing how great Apple photographs are, you know, on your phone, you can hit information and you could possibly, it's almost like, you know, hitting iNaturalist to find out what's planted there. I have a habit now, or I'm trying to ingrain a habit. When I take a photograph, I try to caption it. So, you know, hellebores, mm -hmm. you know, redbud, whatever, so that I can 
at least when I'm looking for that one, I'm not looking through a hundred, I'm looking through half a dozen. So it's helpful, not as helpful as your system with which I am very impressed. Well, the other thing you can do and what I'm trying to be better about because it's all about tricking ourselves, tricking ourselves because I don't have the memory I used to have, tricking myself to not procrastinate, tricking myself to remember, you know, what I did. And, and I think that these devices, these little tricks are helpful because they do help us not only remember, but categorize. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing that I've tried to start doing, and I love your idea of that. I'm terrible about writing captions. I'm a little bit better about creating albums. Ah, yes. So I'll create nothing but an album of just alliums. Yeah. And that can be alliums at any time of year. So then I can say alliums, May 2023 or whatever and search that way because you are like me, I know, and you probably have 30,000 photographs. Oh, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And actually when I'm sitting waiting for an airplane or something, that's when I go back or I don't, you know, I don't have, um, I don't have a good connection. I'm just like, let's just go back and edit some of these things or get rid of some of these things. It's, it's so ridiculous or put captions on these things because they are worth keeping. You know, I love in the garden journal. I love the inventory pages. I thought those were really fun. When I first glanced at them, one section was for tools and I'm like, I know what tools I have, but that's because I'm in a tiny garden and I've curated all my tools and I know exactly what tools I have. But back, you know, back at my old garden, I asked that would have been very, very helpful. I think it's still helpful for when something is purchased new and you're like, wow, that brand didn't last so long. Maybe I'll try a different brand or a better reviewed one. So tools. But the one that really made me happy was seeds because who doesn't have that ridiculous, I don't know, shoebox full of and, and and some of them are just not even viable anymore. And if you just knew what you had, if you were going to plant it and then discarded the rest, because you're so shameful at having to fill in every entry in the in the journal. <laughs> or, or don't be overwhelmed. Give away what you're not going to use. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I am recording that I've got on my calendar is I've got a seed meeting. <laughs> oh, fun. With a couple of people. Because I have, you know, I get sent AAS seeds. I have just just tons of seeds. People send me seeds from their garden and I can't possibly use all of them. And one of the things that I, a decision that I made, just as you made, we all are making decisions on making our gardens manageable. And you and I both moved to smaller, I'll be them beautiful, but smaller gardens. Well, one sacrifice I made was I don't want to start seeds anymore. Oh, wow. I mean, I'll start them in the ground, but I'm not going to do seed starting anymore under lights. I don't want to do that. I don't have the bandwidth for that. I don't have the the mental, spiritual, or or even physical space to do that anymore. But I have friends who say, oh, I will happily do that for you. And, and it's a win-win because I say, okay, I will give you all these seeds for free. You take as many as you want. I just just start them, have as many as you want for your back 40, and I'll just take five or six plants. Perfect. That's so smart. And so then it's a win-win. And so yeah. I have people that I'm doing that with, and I record that in my in my garden journal. Okay. I have <laughs> Susan meeting. owes me half a dozen Cleomy. Yes. Okay. Yes. Come on, Susan, yes. come through for me. <laughs> yes. yes. And um, and the other thing is, is I, you know, record the poetic 
a lot a lot of it we've heard before but then you come across some really great gardening passage that really sticks close to home that's another reason i use my little camera because i don't want to write it all out so i'll just take a snapshot of it and put it in my in my journal but there's so many ways and there's no right way there's no wrong way the other reason i love it is it it has it has historically been one of of two different kinds of gifts as a housewarming gift and i know they're going to be starting a garden i'll give it as a housewarming gift a really good gift really good gift and along with some seeds some you know garden tools or whatever the other reason I give it um, is for a wedding gift. If I know that people, so many young people are starting to get married and, you know, they get all this other stuff, well, why not give them a garden journal and also a really great set of pruners of whatever, because you need those kinds of things every bit as much as you need another toaster. (laughs) So, um, So it's one of my favorite wedding gifts to give and it's, you know, and you can personalize it. Oh, yeah. Anyhow, I just think it's special. We're also, it's available, um, it's really going to be available in March, but you can already get it on Amazon and it's on sale right now. But also if you like to buy from your own local bookstore, which I so admire, independent bookstore, then just ask them to please order it for you yep. and order order some. Um, and the other thing is that this is the first time, certainly that I've done it, And then I think my publisher has done it and we're coming out with a boxed set. Oh, so you'll be able to get a boxed set of my book, the elegant and edible garden and this garden journal, which will come in a box. They are coordinated and they will, they'll match. Even an even better gift to give to somebody. An even better gift. So I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking Mother's Day and maybe, or, or it would, this would make a great Valentine's Day gift. I think so too. It's got, like I said, I can see the patina potential and yet it is very elegant and white right now. We'll see. Um, we'll see how long that stays. It's got you all. It's got some tooth. This linen-y sort of. I don't know what it really is, but some sort of material. But the your finger. It's not smooth on the top. Yeah, it's got texture to it. It's got texture. We can get some good microbes going here and possibly grow a little moth. I think that's great. I, I love it. I'm. You have inspired me yet again. Let's talk about what's coming up with you in your world. You are going someplace to speak to somebody surely tell us about oh yeah yeah there's always something I was in California last week which was just so so much fun I spoke to La Jolla Garden Club and it was just ever so much fun so if you're listening thank you ladies and by the way I did tell them they need to listen to your podcast oh you're very kind I try to remember to share that wherever I can and then in March, these are the bigger things. I'm, I'll be doing more local kind of little things. But in March, I'm going to be at the Indianapolis Flower and Patio Show at the Indianapolis Fairgrounds on March, I think it's 16th and 17th. I'll be there making a presentation and also signing books and answering lots of questions and just meeting people. So please, please come so that I know there'll be two or three people in the audience. And then uh, <laughs> I'm doing also the Oklahoma City Home and Garden Show. I think, check these dates. I think that's the 24th and the 25th. I'll be doing um, a bunch of PR spots for both of these coming up pretty soon. So you can you can confirm the dates. Uh, but the same thing there. So I'll be I'll be visiting at the fairgrounds with people who are doing different kinds of gardening and have different kinds of challenges. And we can we can just all commiserate because that's the fun. I mean, you know, 
Yeah, that's that, that's the best part about gardening is talking about it. Well, maybe not. I actually love digging in the dirt. When you um, when people want to catch up with you the best and the most in terms of social, YouTube is 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 a little better than Instagram in terms of. Yeah, I, I try to feed Instagram, but you know, it's, it's a lot. Um, yeah, it's a hungry monster. It's a hungry monster and I'm trying to be better at feeding it. Um, so right now we publish at a minimum three videos a week on YouTube. That's where to go. Yeah. Every Wednesday I do what I call a Wednesday walkabout and you can see what I am doing or what I'm not doing or what I'm looking at in my garden on Wednesdays. Um, and then on Saturdays, we do what I call signature style Saturday, which is just anything that speaks to mine, yours, whoever, how you develop a signature style in and out of your garden, in, in and out of, of your home, how you dress, um, that kind of thing. And then on Sundays, we it might be more garden tips, it might be more garden how-tos, but it might also be, uh, we just did a marvelous garden tour of a garden in, in La Jolla, just like I did yours. There'll be garden tours, there'll be out, out and abouts in Oklahoma City. Um, but everything that in some way, whether you were in the garden or not, relates back to gardening. Even when we come inside and put on fabulous clothes. Yeah, even even when we come inside and um, you pour us both a bourbon and we talk about the agonies <laughs> and the ecstasies of gardening. And why did we why did we have to pick this as our passion? I know it is kind of funny, but it's actually a magical time to be passionate about it because it's all anticipation. And then it will be that flurry of spring and everything will be beauty. The agony doesn't come until, well, for you, probably May, for me, late June, when we're like, oh my God, I am cooking my body and my plants in this weather. But luckily we, we, we've got a few months before that happens. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it does get extreme. And I think it's important. I, I know, you know, we're supposed to say suck it up cowgirl and don't complain, but I am, I am a real advocate and I mean this seriously, I am a real advocate of complaining when it gets that hot <laughs> or, or when it gets that cold, because otherwise people don't know what's going on. And they, they really don't know the extreme nature of your of your heroic activities being out there in the garden, keeping it alive when it's when it's that hot or that cold, because there's a lot of, of fair weather gardeners out there. But you're not really a, a gardener until you're a foul weather gardener. That's true. I think that there are people who, okay, like I can think of somebody in this interview who said, I'm not going to do seeds anymore. And I totally, totally respect that. I actually only started doing seeds a couple of years ago. So I am going to do a few more trays in my tiny little plant room under my grow lights because I, I don't feel like I've mastered it yet. Um, however, I am my, my little, I'm not doing that no more is I, you know, I used to say, well, 40 degrees, of course I'm out in the garden. I think I'm 50, Linda. I think it's, yeah. I think I'm, I'm way over 50 years old, but I think it's 50 degrees. Yeah. Now there, there are no absolutes. And, and, and now, you know, now when I see people say, oh, I am a hundred percent organic, I'm thinking, eh, you know, and, and what I try is to do the best I can under the circumstances. So I am probably 90% organic. But do I want my whole garden to die because of that 10%? No, no. Yeah. So I, I try not to be an absolutist about things. I try to function within the context of the real world. You know, I used to think, 
It didn't count unless I did it myself. And now I'm thinking, and who's counting? You know, <laughs> once I once I prove to myself I know how to do this and I can do it myself, I, you give yourself permission for other people to do other things. So yeah. am I absolutely not going to start seats indoors anymore? Well, of course not. But <laughs> as a general rule, am I giving myself permission to let other people do some of those things either because I don't want to, I don't have the time, I don't have the strength, I don't have the mental acuity to do those things anymore. Then I think I think that shows gardening with grace. Yeah. I think, I think it's a fantastic outsourcing. And then also this wonderful system of, and by the way, um, here's this packet of seeds. Just bring me a couple of brilliant, brilliant. I think that you should put that in the next edition of the journal. Like that's the, that's the yeah. best tip ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Judy, when well, all else fails, delegate. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you go because you're a busy, busy girl, but thank you so much. And um, I will be putting links to all of this information and the garden journal will be available is available now and will be like on bookshelves before you know it. And it is gorgeous and everybody wants it. So thank you for coming to chat with us about it. You bet my friend. It's always fun to visit with you. Hang on a few more minutes listeners. And we'll talk about what is going on in your garden right now. What a lovely opportunity to chat with Linda. I got home yesterday from a few weeks away. You might be able to tell that I wrote the first part of the show while I was away. I didn't have time to actually garden today or yesterday, but I took some notes of some things that are happening in my new little garden, and I jotted them down in my new Linda Vada journal, which, as mentioned, is currently clean and living by the coffee machine. This could change. I can see that stealing her idea, and Linda said that there are no new ideas, right? Anyway, yeah, I might do that thing of having the journal live not too far out in the elements, but on my little porch undercover, if I should forget it when it rains, and ready to develop whatever patina my dirty garden gloves wish to share with it. So my garden journal routine is TBD, but I have started writing in it. And what's going on in my garden? There isn't much to write because it's my new garden and it's very microscopic, but I've noted a few things that I'll share with you. The most prominent camellia that I inherited right off the little terrace at the start of the bowling alley is not as feared fire engine red. You could call it a deep reddish pink and it has white blotches on the petals. So I got pretty lucky with that one. But there are two others up on the hillside that are just beginning to bloom. And yep, we got red. We got red, 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 red. And then of course the yellow stamens and all that stuff sort of makes it look, well, that's just not my favorite combination in the garden, red and yellow, but it's colorful. All is well. Curiously, another camellia that's further down in the bowling alley is not blooming at all yet. I mean, and it didn't bloom last fall. It's not a Sasanqua. Here it is late February, covered with buds. And it's odd because I think that my bowling alley garden is, should be quite a little microclimate of heat. I mean, it's hard to imagine a space between a brick house and a concrete retaining wall wouldn't like be hotter than the norm. But I'll figure it out. I'll tell you what goes on with that in a few weeks, maybe. Let's go on to roses. I inherited a couple of climbing roses and my fingers are crossed for good colors on those. And not red. I like pinks and whites. Well, that's just me. One of them has a decent chance of prolific blooming. The other one doesn't get as much sun, but I'm not going to worry about that because although I predict that it won't have as many flowers, I could be wrong. When I moved into my last garden and when I always started gardening at clients' houses, 
I like to give plants a chance because, I mean, unless the client hated them or something, I think it's worth seeing if something's going to perform better than what you predict. There's so many contributing factors to success in the garden, and sometimes something could do beautifully without you thinking that it could. So I'm definitely giving these climbing roses a chance. I already pruned them, probably too early. I did it in December. This is a great time to prune roses, and I, d I don't think I've suffered any bad results of having pruned them early. I was just anxious because this is a new garden. I took them out of some dubious-looking rubber-coated metal teepee sort of structures. I mean, calling these things two tours sounds way too posh, so we'll just go teepee. I threw those away. They were both trained up and inside of these things, and the last gardener here probably didn't know that the secret of climbing roses, which I'm sure you know, dear listener, is they don't want to flower if everything's going vertically. They just, they're fine to just push out leaves. They need to be a little stressed out and trained horizontally to spit out those little branches that will spit out those flowers. So if you have climbing roses growing up a pillar, for example, you don't want them to go straight up that pillar. Just twisting them three or four times around that pillar is really going to help you get the flowers that you probably want if you're a rose grower. Some other tips on pruning roses at this time of year would be to remove any dead, damaged, and crossing branches and get rid of the older canes. The newer canes are the ones that are going to want to push out more flowers for you. On a younger, smaller rose, you probably might end up with just three to four canes. Even on an older, larger specimen, you probably don't need any more than six or seven canes. You want to prune branches within about a centimeter of a node that you see that is going to push out a branch in the direction that you want it to go. So if it's a shrub rose, that direction should be not pointed inward, but outward. If it's a climbing rose like mine, which is tacked flat to a fence, same thing. I want the branches to expand out. Oh, and in case you're wondering how I fixed my rose to my fence instead of those horrible teepee things, it was really easy. I just took a staple gun and held it so that the staple would mostly go into the wood, but would leave me some space to thread a wire through it and then around the cane that I wanted to pin down. Easy peasy. And then there's another trick that I used to do professionally when I pruned roses, but I'm far too lazy to do it now. Anyway, it was to have Elmer's glue with me. Any cane that's bigger than a pencil might invite borers to hollow out the cane and make your shrub, well, less healthy. So the Elmer's glue dries clear. So you make that cut and you apply that glue and it stops the borers from being able to get in. If you want to get crafty, get out your glue when you're pruning your roses. So those are my rose tips of the day. You may think that I have left this list incomplete. Well, what about fertilizer? What about spraying? Well, I, I just don't do that stuff anymore. I'm not confident that the soil I inherited in my new garden is great quality, but I'm willing to improve it gradually and slowly through the use of compost. And that will be my fertilizer. And what will be my spraying? Well, nothing, because I've never been interested in spraying anything. That's just sort of me. But you do you. If you've got a good system of spraying roses for better flowers or healthier plants, you got to do you because it's your garden. But if you're doing anything that's toxic to the environment, you might want to rethink it and just be okay with not perfect foliage. I know you're thinking Japanese beetles right now, and so am I. I am very lucky because where I live, we have our first flush of rose flowers before the Japanese beetles really, really come. And then they come and you're like, the rose doesn't look good anyway. You can have it. That's fine. Go ahead. And then you sort of stick as many as you can in soapy water or pinch them between your fingers. Ooh, gross, but very effectual. And then your rose says, oh God, it's August. I'm not going to bloom anyway. 
September comes, temperatures cool, the Japanese beetles are gone, and you get a second flush of really good rose flowers. So I'm, I'm just not willing to battle the Japanese beetles in any way other than physically. Well, I think that's it for now. I hope you have a good start to your year in your garden. Maybe pick up Linda's beautiful journal and start to get it smeared with whatever kind of microbes and soil you can come up with. Hey, if you like this podcast, would you mind taking a minute to rate it on Apple Podcasts and maybe even write a review? That would be so kind of you. It doesn't take very long. Here's a review that Kitsy from Kansas City left me last October. And Kitsy, I am sorry that I've been delayed in responding. Anyway, Kitsy says, Leslie is very knowledgeable about all things annual, perennial, and shrub gardening. And even though I garden in Kansas City, your information is almost always pertinent. She's always fresh and enthusiastic. She does a good interview. And I started following other gardeners that she likes on Instagram. Thanks, Leslie. Well, you are welcome, Kitsy, and thank you for leaving that review. Oh, another plug, if you all would go to the show notes so that you could see some of the links I've put up that are pertinent to this episode, including the fun garden walk that Linda Vodder and I had last summer in my big old garden. If Linda were to come and tour this one, it wouldn't take us nearly as long, but I'm quite sure we would still have fun. Hey, I hope it's starting to warm up for you and that you're starting to see things poke up. I named this podcast Into the Garden with Leslie because I'm into my tiny little new garden. I hope you are into whatever garden space you have, and I will see you next time. 